to be looking at verses 22 through 27. Ephesians, excuse me, Exodus, does start with E, Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached to you. Let us pray and seek the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your revealing yourself to us. We pray that as we take a look at what you would have to say, that our hearts would be open, our minds would be ready and sharp to hear what your statutes and rules would be. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There is a thing in our life that we have come to trust like nothing else. I have been with you at times when you have been trusting this thing, and I have found that sometimes I think you trust it too much. And that thing is your car's brakes. <laughs> Compared to the rest of your car, it takes a very small amount of the actual space that it is. But you rely on this thing completely. Without these brakes, you would slam into trees or other cars and things like that, but we have come to trust them totally. But how have we come to do that? Would you, did you simply take your car salesman at his word that the brakes would work and were functional? Maybe you heard a testimony from your neighbors about how well their brakes worked, so surely yours would as well. But what we have found, the reason why we've come to trust our brakes, some of us too much, but we have come to trust these things because of repeated use. We have come to rely on them and we have pushed them time and time again and have found them to be reliable. So how do you come to trust God more? Well, it comes in the same way. And it's when you are brought to trouble and trial, do you learn who God is and what he does. And this is why James says that we can rejoice when we have trials and tribulations, because that's how our faith grows. It's by going through these things that we can look back and remember and we have a greater trust in our great God. So let's take a look and see how this worked out in this passage. Let's take a look at where these, Egyptian, where, where these Israelites are. They have just been released from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Most of them have never known, well all of them in fact, would, would never have known anything else other than that. 
They've been brought through miracle after miracle with all of the plagues, and now they've been brought to kind of their first big test, and they've just been through that of the Red Sea. As we heard a few weeks ago, that this was kind of a poor military strategy of putting your back up against water when you didn't have a bridge or a boat or the ability to swim. Yet the Egyptian army is coming at them, and God splits the Red Sea for them. And then we took a look last week at how they were prompted to sing. They were prompted to rejoice because of all the things that God has provided for them. And now we're about to see that faith tested again. They've just gone through all of this, and now we're going to go through this again. Let's take a look at these first few verses and what we can learn. I think the first thing that we can learn from this passage is God is the one that brings his people to trial. God is the one who tests his people, brings them into hardship. There's a reason why in verse 22, the verb that's used here says, Then Moses made Israel set out. This is showing that this is God who is leading them forward. They've been made to leave from the Red Sea, and they are purposefully going into the wilderness. A wilderness in which there are no There is no water and hasn't been for three days. Now, we can tend to look on these Israelites and we tend to be overly harsh on them because it's just like, come on, you've seen the Red Sea, have you not? Don't you remember the plague? Surely you should have a faith that's bigger than that. Why are you falling apart over just three days? Does it take only that long to forget your God? We can tend to do that because we don't put ourselves in this situation. But if we can take a look here, We estimate there's anywhere from one to two million people, along with livestock, that have been released from Egypt at this time. And I looked and found out what is it that you're supposed, how much water you are supposed to drink in these sorts of scenarios. You're wandering through the desert, carrying all the stuff on your back, getting everybody into the wilderness. You need about a gallon of water every day. Now, for us in a modern society, going on a car trip, a gallon of water is not hard to come by. It's at every gas station, it's at every water fountain. We have access to that sort of thing. And usually we're only having to think about getting water for maybe four or five of our family members as we drive. But for these people, in order for them to survive, they need two to four million gallons of water per day in order to survive. You want that livestock to be there when you get to the promised land? You better give them about... You know, a gallon per hundred pounds, which if you're carrying around a 600-pound cow, that's going to be a lot of water. This is a really severe test. Because it's not just like if you come across a little puddle or you come across a well that, oh, good, we're saved. Like you, no, you need to have enough water to, to satisfy the thirst of, three, of one to two million people that haven't had water for three days. And if you can't find that sort of water, which, to put it in that terms, you would need about 20,000 bathtubs full of water or about a football field's worth of water 10 feet deep in order to feed, in order to give water to this amount of people. You can imagine what you might be thinking by the end of day two. Our water supplies are low. Every step we go forward means two steps back to the Red Sea. If we stop here on day three to go back, it's three more days before we find water. Every step further may be a step closer to my own death or my child's death. If I do find water, who's going to get it if there's not enough to go around? We're going to make sure that mom has enough water? Is grandma going to be okay? It'd be very difficult for us to exercise our piety in in this situation. 
we've been thrown by a lot less. But here's where the Israelites are. Now you can imagine what they must have felt when they come over the ridge and they see Mara. They don't know that the water's bitter. They just see this huge body of water that they think is going to be enough for everybody to have some water. And you can just imagine the relief that just falls over them to think it's like, oh, good, we don't have to make these kind of calls. Maybe even seeing it a long way off, they can finish off the rest of their water. It's like, I've been rationing this thing out. Now I can finally get the amount of water that I want because I can drink as much of it as I, as I desire. It's just ahead. And then imagine the disappointment, the soul-crushing disappointment. When they bend down, they get the water, and it's just full of minerals. Not that it's just bitter and hard to drink. It's undrinkable. This is not going to help you. All your hope, gone. Some of us have felt that way when we go to a doctor's office. We're waiting for good news. We've been speculating as to how this news is going to play out for days, maybe even weeks. And the doctor comes in and he's got the smile on his face because he hasn't read your chart yet. And you watch the face fall and you try to hear what he has. And you just watch the hope seep away. This is where we find a lot of us. A lot of ourselves can find ourselves in this place. Being led straight into trouble. Now you can imagine how these people would respond. God, what are you doing? This isn't supposed to be how it works. You promised us salvation. You sent this guy. You put all these plagues on Egypt and you brought us out here for what? Teasing us with this kind of water? This is their test. This is their trial. Maybe we've responded in the same way. When we've been given disappointing news, when we have found out that this is not going to work out the way that we thought, the bad diagnosis comes in, a child comes home with some terrible news, a judgment is passed. Well, there's only really two ways to respond to this kind of trial, this kind of soul-crushing discouragement. We've seen how the Israelites did it. They began questioning God. The word that they use here, murmuring, is a really, really strong word. This isn't just kind of your complaining. This is a vote of no confidence in God. This is a call for a new leader. It's like, well, God's not going to provide for our basic needs, so let's find somebody who will. And we'll hear as we get on further into this, into this book that they'll think that we should go back to the Egyptians. Even though they were abusing us, at least we had our needs met. You can imagine how that must sound in God's ears. That kind of grating ungratefulness. That's one way to respond. But then there's a second way to respond. The way that we're supposed to. What we are how we're supposed to respond. And that's the way Moses does. They come and they come complaining to Moses. Moses knows, I can't produce water here. He's in just the same straits as everybody else. He hasn't had water to drink in three days either. He's been gone through, I'm sure went through the same emotional high and then low when he discovered that the water was bitter. But what is it that he does? In verse 25. And he cried 
to the Lord. He knew there wasn't strength in himself to do that. There wasn't strength in himself to, to give water to two million plus people. But he knew who could. And even though everything looked to be completely without hope, he turns to his God. And God responds. And the Lord showed him a log. And he probably tells him, if you take this log and you toss it into this water, it's going to make it sweet. Now in this, there's almost another test here. If you think about it, when we're talking about enough water to satisfy the thirst of two million people, again, we're looking at a football-sized lake, 10 feet deep, how much is a log going to change that water's palatability? I mean, you think how much tea it takes just to make a, a two liter of sweet tea in our, in our situations. It takes almost as much tea as it does water to change that flavor. What he's asking for is, doesn't really make sense. And I can imagine the response of the people as Moses comes up logging this log up to the, up to the water. They might be saying, hey Moses, use your magic stick. That thing has changed the water of the Niles into blood. It split the Red Sea. Why don't you slap it with that? No, the Lord told me to throw this log in there. How is that going to make any help? But he's asked to, he asked for the Lord's help, and he takes the Lord's solution. I'm sure there were other ways that other people would have said, here's how you filter out the water. There's always that one guy who's watching the Discovery Channel who knows exactly what you're supposed to do in these survival situations. And I'm sure he's weighed in and told you the log is only going to add sawdust to our water. But nonetheless, he obeys, throws a slog in the water, and the water becomes sweet. And now everyone's able to drink and is to be satisfied. And then the Lord has his comments. And says, And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. This whole episode has been a test. Is this for God to find out how much faith the Israelites have? Absolutely not. God knows exactly where his Israelites are. He knows exactly where his people are. This test is to show them how much faith they have. For their own hearts to be revealed. I remember I saw an illustration and someone had a, an orange on the table. And they had said, what is the best way for me to show you what's on the inside of this orange? It's to squeeze it. And he took the orange and he squeezed it, and all this black ink came out of the orange because he had pre-injected it for the demonstration. wasn't until, he, until that thing was squeezed. It's not until we're squeezed do we see what's inside us. When there is more month than money at the end, when there are more things to do than it just seems possible to be able to do in a 24-hour period, when we get that cancer diagnosis or any other diagnosis, we're squeezed. And it shows us what comes out. We see what came out of the Israelites when they were squeezed. We saw what came out of Moses when he was squeezed. And now we have our words from, from the Lord. And really, this is, should have been a guiding principle for the rest of Exodus. If they had listened to this portion of Scripture, the whole rest of their troubles that they would have gone through would have been much, much less. 
much, much less anxiety. And it is this. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. Obedience will bring blessing. This is God's statute for these people. Now what's interesting is there's this line, for I am the Lord, your healer. This is something that I didn't really expect to read in this text. Because you would have thought that he had just healed water, right? Took this bitter water and made it sweet. You would have thought he would have introduced himself as saying, I'm the Lord, your God, the healer of the water. I'm the one that did this. But instead, this, he says, I am your healer. I couldn't figure out what this was talking about. And then I'm found that one of my seminary professors had went through this, and he noticed something really interesting. Trials are what bring us closer to God, right? They're what refine us, they show us what's inside. God's healing of this water is just a side effect of the healing of his people. He's healed them from slavery, brought them out, and now he is healing them of their lack of trust in him. And the only way to do that is to put them through these tests. It says, like, okay, I'm going to bring you up to this water. How are you going to react? Okay, that's how you reacted. Here's how I reacted. I've blessed you. I've healed your waters. I've provided for you. And that takes that little bit of distrust and doubt that's sitting in your heart, takes a piece of it away. And then each trial that goes on takes another piece, another piece, another piece, another piece. And slowly he is healing us, just as he's healing the Israelites through these trials. Now you can say, I don't think my trials feel like healing. They feel more like pain. It's a lot in the same way that surgery feels. In the moment, say surgery is unbelievably painful. There is a long recovery time. But there is something that's being changed inside of us, and that is what is bringing healing to us. Cutting a cancer out of a body is painful, but it's the only way to save it. And this is the same way that God heals us through trials. But there's another way that God heals us. This term, healer, shows up a lot in the Old Testament. And it's always God healing, God healing, God healing his people. But there is one passage in which he takes his healing to the next level. And we find that in Isaiah, when we get to the suffering servant. And we find exactly how this healing is taking place. It's not just through trials, but it's through Jesus' stripes. It says, by his stripes we are healed. God is our healer. He steps into our world. He can bring us through trials. He can shepherd us through these things because he knows what those are like. He's very familiar with the place of sorrow and suffering. And he's bringing us right to it and through it. But he's there with us. He's never calling us to go through suffering on our own. He's never calling us to endure trials on our own strength. We wouldn't make it. There's an old saying that goes like, God's not going to bring anything to you that you can't handle. 
That is an absolute lie. He brings you to stuff you can't handle all the time. Because his point to you is, you can't do this without me. You have to trust me. You have to be dependent on me. And anything else that I take away from you so that you see that is worth it. Life is not meant for us to be comfortable. Our life is meant to be dependent on our Lord and Savior Jesus. Having money is so less. Having security is so much less. Anything else that we want in our life, and you can name anything, and it's going to be less than knowing that Jesus is yours and that you are his. That's the whole point of trials. And that's why when we see them come, we can actually say it with James and actually mean it, that we rejoice that these trials have come because they help us see our Savior. We can't get through this on our own. We can't do it ourselves. We have to take a look to Jesus. Now we say, it's like, well, what are we supposed to do with this statement here in Exodus? He's saying, do this and I will bless you. Follow after my rules. Doesn't that sound like legalism? How are we supposed to apply this text to our lives? I think and the way that we do that is what does God call us to do? God calls us to run to Jesus. To found a pattern our life after him. We don't come and we obey these statutes to become saved. That's not the point. God has already saved his people. He's already brought them out of slavery. He doesn't come to them and say, if you obey my rules, I will release you from slavery. It's not how it worked. He brought them out of slavery whether they were faithless in him doing so. He brought them out and after saving them saying, here is how I want you to live. And Isn't it wonderful that we're not asked to figure this out on our own? God has given us a book. He's told us how he wants us to live. He gives us a preview of how he works. So we don't have to wonder. There was a story I read from a missionary. He was going up to an, to an Indian tribe in South America that no one had ever contacted before. Everyone was honestly really afraid of these particular tribe because they were especially brutal. Even the other tribes around the area were afraid of them and would run at the mere sight of them. But somehow, of course, through God's leading and through his spirit's empowering, this man is brought to these Indians. He comes up to them and he sees two of them they have just lost a member of their tribe, has died. And two of them, one of them is up a tree, the other is staring into a hole. And both of them are shouting as loudly as possible, looking for God. Because they don't know where he is. They don't know what he is. They're just hoping for some sort of answer, looking for some sort of guidance. That's where we would be. But he's given us rules and statutes. He shows us which way to go. And he shows us who to trust in. Again, not to gain our own salvation. Can't do it that way. Already failed. You can just think back to just a few of the trials that you've been under. How you have been squeezed. And there will be ample evidence to show you can't do this on, on your own. But it's coming to trust. Coming to trust and obey 
our Savior, Jesus. What does that command look like? Well, he tells you to come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this morning, come. Come, sinner, weighed down with guilt. Come, rule follower, who's expecting to gain their own salvation in this way, burdened with the thoughts of, I'm not up to the standard. Come to him, throw yourself to Jesus. Will the trials stop if you come? No, they're not going to stop. Life is still going to be difficult. But he is going to give you everything that you need. So one commentary had put it this way. It says, spiritual maturity is going to allow you to be able to recognize that when your trial comes, instead of falling apart and asking, is God going to provide? Spiritual maturity says, all right, well, how is God going to provide this time? Trusting in him. So we know with, this, with these Israelites, we can, trust in, we can trust in our God even more than they did. They've seen their God heal water, part a sea. We've seen our God die for us. We know that he loves us tremendously. We've seen all of his faithfulness through all these years, through all ours. So come, let's trust him. Let's look to him only in our trials and look to him only for our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we have responded many times very poorly. I have responded poorly many times. Lord, I thank you for that forgiveness that I have in Jesus. I thank you that you are growing me closer and closer to him. And through these trials are honing all of us to be better servants for you. I pray that we would remember that as we go through this week. May we always look to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.